As was announced already, how delightful it is that we have each been granted the opportunity and, yea, the privilege of assembling on a Lord's Day morning such as this one, this first day of the week, whereby we can begin our week in the proper and right way in terms of our thinking, in terms of our motivation, in terms of where our focus of the matters of life ought to be. As you perhaps are well aware of the character of the hurtfulness in many of the families who've lost loved ones, the void that's there, the others that we know who are sick and continue to be so, let's certainly give thought and prayer to, to those situations. Prayer is so powerful, and it in fact makes such a difference. We read in James 5.16 that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It has been our character for the last few Sundays to turn our attention to the matters of the home. We in particular have looked carefully at the matters of the father, the matters of the mother, passages of scripture that relate to the children. We even looked at passages that related to other members of the family and in fact how all of us have God-given obligations relative to the well-being of the home. It is the case though, and certainly it seems perfectly in order, to understand well the fact that in regard to the home, one of the matters on which God gives so much attention is the marriage, that which exists, of course, between a man and his wife. It is the case that for the next couple of Sundays, we will give some more concerted thought, some more careful consideration relative to the marriage itself. As we do that, quite frankly, we shall encounter many things that no doubt prompt our thinking as to how society looks at things so differently these days and how that quite often you and I are told, even if it is by way of suggestion, that things really need not be as God has said it should be. But in fact, there are other broader alternative means whereby there is just as acceptable a family. We shall give careful thought to all of that. And quite frankly, as we do so, we shall find over and over again the well-being and the character of what God has declared. When man tampers with what God has set forth, he ruins it. He, in fact, perverts it at the very least and removes from it the signal beauty and character that God intended it to have. It is with that in mind that this slide brings us as an introduction to some of the thoughts I would ask us to consider. The family is exceedingly important. It is the basis, of course, of where children can be raised in a godly way. It is the basis of that kind of union that's described as one flesh three times in the Holy Scriptures. It is that union whereby we see the bedrock of not only a community, but ultimately of a nation and what great things even for the church. It is with all that in mind that again we shall give some careful thought using the Bible as our guide to what does God have to say about marriage. As He does say these things about it, our thoughts will be toward a couple of venues. First, the character of the institution itself. But also, what does He say about how the man and the woman conduct themselves to lead to a happy arrangement for a marriage that leads to a kind of peaceful, paradisical arrangement whereby they can appreciate it as a foretaste, yea, of the heavenly abode itself. It is with all that in mind today. Let's begin by looking at a few of these elements. As we do so, here, in fact, is some initial notes that I thought might be useful because, frankly, most of us will not be shocked by these, but it does not at all hurt to be reminded of them. We live in an age and in a time when marriage is literally taking a beating. 
it seems to be insulted in almost any way, number of ways that you and I can imagine. There are those who by their own personal conduct treat it so lightly, they marry and then obtain a divorce almost at the drop of a hat, engage in another marriage as if it's nothing. Sometimes it almost brings a chuckle to those who make the announcements when some notable person passes away and has had eight wives, ten wives, twelve wives. Even though such may appear to be funny, it is a tragic sadness. For it in fact highlights just how trivial in the mind of some marriage has come to be. As if that isn't enough, by the very practical teaching of some, there are those who really claim that marriage is basically a necessary evil. They can't think overtly of many things negative to say about it, but it is not their preference for it to be highlighted in the way that the Bible does it. And so they happily allow it to be, but you can tell by their language that they really consider it a necessary evil. They really don't have much positive to say about it. They don't highlight it as the grandeur that God does. There are yea, others beyond that who look upon it basically as an arrangement that's to be tolerated. They'll admit it's a good place to raise children. They'll admit that it opportunely provides to the husband and wife many good things, but it's just something to be tolerated. And there are other arrangements in their mind that will serve just as well. To say all of that is to say that in the mind of those who are impressionable, this taints the thought of marriage. Children grow up and see a society that treats marriage like this. They see it treated in so many ways. And may we notice that sociologists and psychologists who write these textbooks that they use in school usually have very few good things to say about marriage. They try to be pluralistic and culturally acceptable, and so they paint marriage upon the same level as a homosexual arrangement or as another kind of fornicating arrangement. We can begin to see that as children are reared impressionably like that, it does lead one to appreciate that they come to grow and to see marriage in that same kind of way in so many cases. It is to be noted relative to all of that. The Word of God is still the blueprint manual for marriage. It is here that all of its instructions are found. It is here that not only are the basic character of its nature, but yea, all the features that make it successful and all the matters that lead it to be what God would have it to be, that's where it's found in here. Not in a psychology textbook, not in a marriage counseling guidebook, not in a sociologist training manual. And we all know today that those are the sources to which so many turn for their descriptives and their thinkings about marriage. Because marriage is thus beaten down so much, I would invite us over the next couple of weeks to give our thoughts to what does God say about it. As we begin, perhaps it's fair to start it where God does. Marriage, you see, is a divine institution. It is, in fact, an, an insult to paint it as something that originates in the mind of man. It is a blasphemous claim to think that men somewhere came up with it, suggested it, highlighted it, or set it forth. It is still an interesting feature that as far as sociologists are able to determine every civilization on earth knows about and practices marriage. 
It's not as if some ancient tribe, as they would say, thought it up. Others disagreed with it and chose not to follow it. Everyone, be it in the far distant reaches of the middle of Africa, be it in the nations of southeastern Asia, or be it here in the southern part of the United States, appreciate the existence of that which is called marriage. And it is, in fact, a divine institution. In Genesis chapter 2, we will recall that in the creation scene, on day number 6, after a whole host of other land animals had in fact been made, God did something entirely different. He said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and with the formation and creation of Adam. Here was something unlike any animal that he had made. Adam was made in God's image. And of all the matters that God had fashioned and made, only one thought led him to make this statement. It is not good that the man be alone, God said, Genesis 2.18. It is still a remarkable and lasting feature that on that occasion, what is it that God did? He did not bring a gorilla to Adam and say, here is a suitable helpmeet for you. Our evolutionist friends might well think such could have been done, but such is laughably ludicrous. We will appreciate furthermore that it was on that occasion that God brought a deep sleep upon Adam. Removing a rib from his side, he fashioned a woman and he brought her to the man. You see, on this occasion, it was God who, knowing full well the kind of creature he had made, this man Adam, knowing what weaknesses there were, what tendencies there were, what characteristics of internal character there were, he fashioned the perfect and ideal helpmate, a woman, brought her to the man. As you can see in those passages to which I've referenced us, it was again prompted by this thought, it's not good for the man to be alone. There is something about companionship and love and intimacy that of course are very meaningful. And more than once, we have noticed time and again how that the Catholic Church has suffered when their priests, who they require to remain celibate, end up doing things that they ought not be doing. A part of that is still a characteristic it's not good for the man to be alone. It should be something thus that's often in our mind when we think about God provided the perfect answer for that shortcoming. He created Eve and brought her to Adam. When he did that, we will notice furthermore that a whole host of other things help us to see that it is in that marriage that certain things and only in that way can they be experienced with the character and with the blessing of God. Think for instance about intimacy, the kind of intimacy that goes with sexuality. That, according to God, cannot be satisfied and experienced in any way other than in marriage. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, God on that occasion expressly said, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Thus, we see that any other kind of experience relating to that sexuality, other than in that, constitutes fornication. Thus, we see that if that is to be satisfied as one of the desires of the human frame, only in marriage can it be experienced. It is with that thought in mind. It is a divine institution and God gave it to satisfy the needs of men, to form the framework for the basis of yea, nations 
And of course, to have a great character of even leading to the character of the gospel. Not only may we say that it's a divine institution, what about our second point as well? It is honorable. We noted earlier in our lesson this morning how that those in our society have come in many ways to disparage marriage, to describe it in a way that's not very honorable, to discuss it in a way that leaves one to question or doubt as to how good it really is. And might we say that in our current land and in our current world, many, many people, many, many couples are choosing not to marry. The latest figures that I saw, roughly half now, of individuals in Great Britain who bring children into the world are choosing to live together unmarried. Now, in our nation, it isn't far from 50%, but we still are a little bit less than that. Even if it's a small percentage, it's still sad that individuals are choosing to live in fornication rather than to, in fact, marry as God would have them do. It is with that in mind, consider this character of honorability. All of those comments that I made earlier, where some see marriage as merely something to be tolerated, some see it as a necessary evil, all of those are the work of the devil as he taints and in fact approaches the mind of individuals and leads them to doubt and to question and to treat marriage lower than what God has done it. It has often been noted that if Satan can destroy the home... And certainly marriage is the framework and the bedrock foundation. If he can destroy that, it won't be long before the nation will fall. It won't be long before the church will suffer. And it won't be long before yet any number of other elements of society will crumble once the family has been called into question. The Hebrew writer, as Gary read earlier for us, said, Marriage is honorable in all. Stopping the verse at that point, marriage is honorable in all. We should thus not fall under the thinking of some in the ancient day that marriage wasn't honorable. In that first century, there were some who had already begun to think that marriage had an inherent evilness to it. Such could not be further from the truth. In fact, isn't it amazing in Ephesians chapter 5, we notice on that occasion that when though Paul was discussing Christ and His church, he likened it to a marriage between a man and his wife. If that doesn't lift marriage to an exceedingly high plane, then I don't know what else would. To liken it or describe it in terms of the relationship that Jesus bears to His church. We know Jesus died for that church. We know He gave His all for it. And we understand well from verse 27 that He presented a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In that same consideration, verses 31 and 32 remind us, He used the relationship of a husband to his wife to help us understand more deeply the relationship of Jesus to His church. It is because of that honorable character. I would invite you to notice one of the other ways that Hebrews 13.4 has been rendered. We just read it a moment ago, marriage is honorable in all. That word could also have been rendered marriage is precious in all. It's valuable. It's worth a lot. That's very much different in the way we noticed it described earlier. Do you and I hold it up like that for ourselves, for our children, for those whom we influence, so that they will come to know it is indeed precious, it's valuable, it's honorable. 
And it is something, of course, on which God has given His highest stamp of approval. It is with that in mind we come to yet a third element. Not only have we seen that it's a divine institution, not only honorable in its character, but let's be a bit more specific about the participants therein. As we revisit that scene in Genesis, the second chapter, we do notice so well that that shortcoming, that character in which it was not good for Adam to be alone, what did God do to remedy that? He made one woman. He didn't make two, six, twenty. He made one woman for one man. And thus that teaches us by way of explicit pattern that polygamy is sinful. Even though we read it often in the character of the Old Testament. Think about Lamech. As early as Genesis, the fourth chapter, here was Lamech, one of the descendants of Cain, who chose a second wife. God never approved any such in the sense of stating it as something that He would accept. We furthermore notice later perhaps no one comes to our mind more quickly than Solomon. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines according to 1 Kings 11. But before that verse is over, it says, They drew him away from God. You see, one couldn't lift up Solomon at that point in his life at least as one to whom one would look as an example of holiness and godliness. These wives had turned his attention away from the truth and he himself had been guilty of doing those things which were not pleasing unto God. God had made one woman for one man. And that pattern is what he anticipated and what he set forth by his very answer to that initial question. Look, for instance, at what the human family has begun to do to this. We know that relatively often on the news there are various religious groups, and we know of one, of course, out in Utah, who are happy to say that polygamy is all right with God. Such is not the case. We know there are others, at least in our modern day, who claim that a man and a man can make an acceptable family, or a woman and a woman. But God made one woman for one man. Isn't it still the case that when God fashioned the woman, she is different than the man. He is different than her. She is there to answer the needs of his life and to be that helpmeet. Man is not to be the helpmeet for man. We remember the condemnation of homosexuality in so many passages of Scripture. In the patriarchal era, Genesis 19, the city of Sodom, as they came, those men did, to Lot's house. The angels had come and they wanted to know them. Genesis 19, verses 4 and 5. So incessant were they that they beat on the door and Lot didn't want to bring his visitors and guests out to them, knowing what they were, had in mind. Finally, they were so extreme, so interested in following through with their homosexual desires that the angels had to strike the men blind. And we remember that not many verses later, God rained brimstone and fire upon that wicked city. As we turn our attention later to the law of Moses, God hadn't changed His mind even then. In Leviticus 18, as well as Leviticus 20, Specifically, verse 13 of Leviticus 20, God there said, Man shall not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. In fact, he even went on to state that they should be put to death. Thus, whether it be the patriarchal era 
whether it be the Mosaic era, God did not present that as an acceptable alternative. In the New Testament, the Christian era, the matter hasn't changed at all. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, some in Corinth had been homosexual. Paul said, those who ever are will not receive the kingdom of heaven. But furthermore, he said, such were some of you. They no longer lived in that lifestyle. They'd been forgiven of that sin. In Romans 1, verses 25 on to verse 31, we see a number of passages relating to the unnatural use. When men burned in their desires one for another and left the natural use of the woman, Paul, in fact, stated that this was not only unseemly, it was unnatural and it would bring the retribution of the God of heaven. Verses 27 and 32 of Romans chapter 1. Thus we see that though men may try to insert it, that though men may try to bring it forth, it is not a biblically acceptable alternative to the family and the home and to marriage. Not only this third point, what about the fourth one? We also read in the Scriptures that the institution of marriage, God intended to be permanent. He didn't intend for this marriage to be dropped off into non-existence, for it to be terminated at the drop of a hat. It was His intent for the man and the woman to remain married till death. That still is the typical part that is mentioned in a marriage ceremony. Till death do us part. You see, that is often found in principle in the sacred text of the Bible. In Romans 7 verse number 2, we read there that the woman is bound to her husband as long as he liveth. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39, the woman is bound to her husband as long as the husband liveth. It was God's intent, you see, that there be one man for one woman for life. It was to be a permanent arrangement, not to be brought to bear in terms of termination for whimsical or fancy ways, as you understand with me this issue of the permanence in marriage, it's still amazing that we give some thought to a part of what the Lord said. There were some Pharisees in Matthew 19 that came to Jesus and in fact asked Him, Shall a man put away his wife for every cause? Verse 3 of that chapter. In His answer, the first thing the Lord said, Have you not read that He which made them at the beginning made them male and female? He thus quoted from Genesis chapter 2 and said, This was the original arrangement, the God-given description of marriage. But then he went on to say, verse number 6, What God therefore had joined together, let not man put asunder. In other words, when God has done the joining, when heaven has given its approval as the character of the joining together of this man and woman, it is to be noted, let not man put asunder. Thus, the only way in which that marriage can be terminated is by an explicit cause and reason as provided by the God of heaven. Only God, since He joined them, only He can say when they're unjoined. That only stands to reason, doesn't it? Man thus does not have the liberty to decide when this marriage is terminated. Only God can do that. In light of that point, I would ask you to give some thought to another thing then that was mentioned on that occasion. The Jews, the Pharisees, were very quick to say, but didn't Moses grant a writing of divorcement? 
Did Moses, in fact, make allowance for and termination of this marriage? The Lord said, yes, He did. But He said from the very beginning, it was not so. There was a time in the darkness of that Mosaic era when God tolerated, due to the hardness of their hearts, Jesus said, the nature of that matter of divorce. And it is discussed in Deuteronomy chapters 24 and 25. But Jesus overwhelmingly there said what Lamech did, Solomon did, all those others, it was never intended by God to be that way. It was not so. And thus in this Christian era, the pristine highest era of time, God has called all to understand this is what marriage was supposed to be all along. Permanent in design. It is for that reason. These passages we've seen, being bound until death. Thus, we need to help our youngsters understand that when they begin to contemplate marriage, that young son has met a very special young lady. And they begin to think about and talk about and give consideration to marriage. Both of them need to overwhelmingly understand that this is no minor decision. That it must be entered into with all of the care and all the consideration of something that is intending to last until death. It is permanent in design. That permanency takes us really to yet another point. As you notice at the bottom, if it is then God that can unjoin them, if you please, what are those means that allows that to happen? Well, we've already mentioned one. Romans 7, verses 2 to 4, death. When one of the marriage partners passes away, we understand the other can then remarry. 1 Corinthians seven thirty nine asserts only in the Lord. But there is that God-given blessing of the capability of remarriage. The only other thing in all of Scripture that is mentioned as a means whereby one can petition God for the termination of that marriage is when one of the partners commits fornication. Matthew 19, 9 says it like this. Whosoever therefore, as he makes mention at the start of that verse, whosoever therefore putteth away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marrieth another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. It is then the case that when a marriage partner commits adultery, commits fornication, if you will, that kind of behavior will allow that innocent one to petition for, file for divorce, obtain not only one recognized civilly on this earth, but also in the halls of heaven. That person is then given the God-given right to remarry. The guilty one can never remarry with the blessing of God. It is in light of a passage like that one, and it's reiterated in Matthew 5, verses 32 and 33, that it reminds us this permanency is highlighted so profoundly, and that, of course, stands a bit different than the Mosaic claim of Deuteronomy 25. A fifth point, though, might well be this one. We've mentioned it in passing, but perhaps it's worthy of an additional comment. We so often, as we in fact attend a wedding ceremony, see the husband, we see his wife, we appreciate the vows that they take, and it looks as if there perhaps are but two involved in that ceremony and in the consequent marriage. But we would be mistaken in that. For really there are three. Notice again that text of verse 6 of Matthew 29. What therefore God hath joined together, 
The preacher doesn't join them. The state of Tennessee doesn't join them. Putnam County Courthouse officials don't join them. What God has joined together, it is God who has given the official authority and the ultimate stamp of character on that union that is formed with them. What God has joined together. It is in light of that 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 family that is beginning in its structure on that occasion will never be all that it can be unless God is used, or rather as He is incorporated into the character of that family. The husband should appreciate that he needs to follow the guide of God to be a good husband. The wife needs to appreciate she must follow the guide of God to be a good wife. And they each, as they're bound to each other, individually bound to God, that triumphant of three will make a steadfast and powerful home that the onslaughts of this world will not be able to topple. Because of that, some of these comments follow. As they're bound to each other, think about, again, that passage in Ephesians 5. God is so carefully and should always be involved. As they each turn to the Word of God for the guidance in their lives, how to be the good spouses they can be, the good parents they can be, how to make sure that home is orchestrated as it ought to be, God must be included. In fact, He must be a steadfast and firm constituent in all the decisions that go into the makeup of that home. A marriage involves three. Beyond that, we notice there was something else about that initial scene in Genesis, the second chapter. We didn't lay emphasis upon it before, but it's time to look at the next verse. We notice that when God fashioned Eve and brought her to Adam, we notice the first comment was this one. It said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And that, as interesting as that situation in reading is, it's the next verse on which I would ask us to give some thought for a moment. It says, Therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And one of the first matters then that comes before us and it's the sixth point in the lesson this morning is this issue of leaving. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. Isn't it interesting that even in this initial element, the setting forth of marriage, we have a point that can be well problematic in a marriage. We understand that father and mother are those that have an important role in our heart. We are told to honor them in Scripture. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 1, honor thy parents. But we do know when it comes to the character of marriage, there must be in essence a leaving of dad and mom. Dad and mom are not the most important in life any longer. For the woman, her dad and mother are no longer the most cherished and most closest of earthly relationships. It is for the husband, his wife. It is for the wife, her husband. Now may we again note, that doesn't say ignore dad and mother. The Bible tells us to honor them and to care for them as they get older, to make sure their needs are met. But we understand what it was that God was here saying. For the husband, it is she that occupies that most cherished and significant and important role now more so than dad and mother. By the same token, for her it is that husband. They are bound together in one flesh. Dad and mother do not occupy that role. It is they 
thus who we appreciate in light of this point? That means that that leaving leads us to appreciate just how special that relationship is. They give their steadfast attention to each other. Family members mustn't be allowed to tear them asunder, to lead them to distrust and doubt. Family members and other acquaintances and associations must not be placed on equal par with the relationship that one has with one's spouse. Leave behind mother and father. It is for that reason that we notice that can cause difficulties and problems. When the wife is closer to her own parents than she is to her husband, there's no doubt that's going to lead to problems. And when the husband is closer to his parents than he is to his wife in terms of cherished relationship, there's no question that's going to lead to problems. There must be this element of leaving. Not only must there be an element of leaving, there must be an element of cleaving. In that same verse we just read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. We notice then these points also are very vital. He is to cleave unto her. As you can see, that word cleave means to cling, to stick close to, to stick with, to follow closely, to join to. That word describes a number of things that are very intimate and close and tight and strong. In fact, in light of that, I might ask you to notice some other ways that that same word is used in Scripture that might give us an indication of its meaning. When it said cleave in Ruth 1 verses 14 to 16, wasn't it true that Ruth clave, past tense of the word, but clave unto Naomi? Their husbands had all died, but you'll notice that she clave to Naomi, not in a sexual way, of course, but she was determined, and I would ask you to notice the words that she used. In fact, sometimes this is appropriate language to use in a marriage ceremony. But on that occasion, when Naomi urged her to go back to her own people, she refused, and this was her answer. Entreat me not to leave thee. Entreat me not to leave thee, she said. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God, and where thou diest will I die, and there will I be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. What a statement of dedication. What a statement of loyalty. Until the time of death, she intended to take care of Naomi. She intended to ensure the things concerning her were met. Don't entreat me to leave you because I'm not going to do it. In many ways, that word cleave then serves as a pattern for us to give thought to the strength in marriage. These two cleave to each other. They have been bound into one flesh, and together they form an almost unshakable onslaught against the character of what it will be thrown at them. Beyond that, in Joshua 23, 8, that same word is used to describe the relationship Israel had with God. They were to cleave unto God and to always sense His closeness and the guiding power when they were obedient to Him. It is unfortunate that so many times matters like this can be a problem to marriage when parents are such that one of them cleaves more to their parents than they do to each other. Or when one family member cleaves closer to a friend 
or more closely to some other acquaintance or an associate than they do to their spouse. It ought not so to be. When they cleave to each other, there's an element of trust that's forged. There's an element of togetherness in which they learn to lean and rely upon each other and they thus find in that arrangement one of the greatest senses of internal strength and fortitude that can allow them, in fact, to sustain and triumph over whatever this world will throw at them. It is that that's such a beautiful thing to consider. There is to be leaving, but there's also to be cleaving. With regard to all of that, these seven points lead us to summarize or conclude this lesson. And with it, here are some thoughts that we've attempted to consider today. Along the way, we have seen that marriage is in fact an honorable and great blessing presented to us as a very acceptable thing of God when it meets the criteria that He has set forth. But the attributes we've noted are these. It is a divinely appointed institution and it is honorable. Furthermore, there is one man for one woman for life, highlighting not only the character of the two involved at that point, but the permanency that goes with it. We then saw that God also must have a role in it because He's the one that joins them. And finally, we notice that they are to leave parents and other individuals, but to cleave to each other. And with that, we've set the stage for the thoughts that shall come next Lord's Day morning as we continue our study. But so far today, as we give thought to marriage, may we never speak of it in ways that demean it, because as described in the Bible, it truly is a great blessing indeed. Are you a Christian today? Are we faithful in our devotion to our spouses, in our devotion to God? If you're not a Christian, then you can't be the best spouse that you could be. We would urge you today to think seriously and urgently about the state of your life. And if you need to respond in a public way, perhaps you've become a member of the body of Christ in the distant past, but you have forgotten the truth or have in fact failed to follow it. Why not come back today to your first love? If you have never become a Christian, you need to start that journey today. A journey that should lead you through the remainder of life and of course on into the glorious portals of eternity. If we could assist you in either of those ways today, we'd be honored to assist in the ways that we can and to do that while together we stand and while we sing.